This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 16th, 2023. I'm Scott Lunderbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, it's been a quieter week with the holiday. So we're going to dig a bit deeper on housing and see where the other parties in the BC legislature are positioning themselves in response to the government's latest bills on housing. And we've got, you know, a roundup of other news that's happened. Patreon.com slash Politicos to support the show. First up, the the happy news, the good news uh, started with a press release on Tuesday that the Emergency Management and Climate Readiness Minister is beginning her parental leave. Bowen Ma started on Tuesday and yesterday she announced that uh, little Azalea was born at the Lionsgate Hospital on time and on budget. Congrats to Bowen Ma. Well, congrats. George Heyman will be filling in for her role. I am glad to see they've managed a maternity leave system for cabinet. Uh, I think politicians often get overlooked in terms of the need to also have family lives. And so this this is a positive thing. And I want to see more of this, more cabinet ministers on parental leave. <laughs> oh, we had a couple other announcements out of the government before we get into our main discussion of the housing debates. For those working in gig work and online platforms, the government has like pre-announced legislation, I guess. I actually was trying to figure out what what this is. And it's a commitment to later introduce amendments that will make some of this stuff happen, as well as some regulations. But that's good, I guess. I guess. I mean, I guess, I guess they're feeling it was like a slow news week, so they needed to throw something in there. It's It's it follows up some consultation they had done on what people want and what industry wants and where the government feels best positioned to set the standards to protect people who are working for Uber or Lyft or many of these other uh, food delivery or ride hailing apps. And what they've come up with is there's going to be a minimum wage system. There'll be a minimum earnings of 120% of minimum wage, apply it to engage time. And I think that amount that additional top up covers your time spent between assignments so yeah, you're only so you, paid for your driving around time yeah so they to offset that through an extra 20 percent for your engaged time probably a fairly rough metric but seems to make sense they're not including tips in that they also are going to make sure that tips are protected from any withholdings or deductions from the company so if you tip your uber driver four dollars they will get $4, which is how I think most people think tips work because it's how it works in restaurants, or at least it's supposed to. Otherwise, it's wage theft. Uh, they're also going to allow uh, workers to, uh, I believe it says, uh, get additional compensations for the costs they incur for using their personal vehicle. And we're going to figure out what those are in the future. Uh, there'll be some pay transparency and destination transparency systems so that they know where they'll have to go and what they'll get paid to do that, some clarity around 
uh, suspensions and terminations and ensure that they're covered by workers' compensation. That all seems fairly reasonable. Yeah, I haven't seen much reaction to this yet. Uh, they have said that they're not doing anything around hours of work, overtime, holidays, leave, or vacation yet, but they are going to uh, continue to monitor those areas, which all seems reasonable. I mean, it's a tough... Yeah, and there's like no poison pills from what I can see in this that would you know, make the app-based uh, employment unfeasible as well. So seems like a reasonable middle ground. Yeah. And we'll have to see when this bill comes in. Maybe it will come in next week or and be in before the end of the year. But otherwise, this is just a really early announcement for next year. The other announcement is also a pre-announcement that at some point we are going to be getting standardized designs for these multiplexes. Uh, this is basically a quasi Vancouver special, except for two to six unit multiplexes that follow the uh, new law we described around upzoning the entire province. What's nice about this approach for anyone who's not listened to too much of us or Canby Report is having these standardized designs can really eliminate permitting delays and just strike it down to, you know, it's a simple check, yes or no that you have pretty much said you're going to build something that's already been pre-approved. Yeah, there'll need to be a little flexibility for some site-specific uh, considerations and whatnot. But yeah, basically having a set of plans that everybody knows will meet the requirements and you can push it through the permitting system very quickly is a very good way to speed up permitting times. The Vancouver special uh, that you alluded to, it's kind of a Vancouver version of that that... Uh, I don't think that was so much government, right? I think that someone figured out a way to uh, like come up with a fairly standardized one that could get approved pretty quick, and it kind of ran with that. Uh, I don't actually know the history of the Vancouver Special, probably as well as I, I think should. you're right with that. Um, this time, they're, the government's commissioning the uh, designs. Don't see, didn't see here whether or not that there would be like a licensing fee for that or something, but presumably there would likely be some sort of... Uh, small amount, but, uh, you know, it's likely going to be significantly cheaper as well on the design end than to, uh, have to commission, uh, bespoke plans for every single building that gets put up. So there'll be savings there. And also, uh, there may end up being significant savings, uh, in terms of, you know, markets and how the suppliers respond to this as well. Uh, something like think a lot of people who aren't in the construction industry don't appreciate is just how much time and uh, resources goes into risk mitigation and having something that is fairly standardized after you know you've built a few of them you can get a much better sense of the project risks involved and that'll like allow uh, contractors uh, to tighten up some of their costing estimates on this suppliers uh, may be able to uh, adjust some of their offerings in terms of material supplies and whatnot that, you know, you're not going to get like the full um, economies of scale that would come with, say, a factory-made home, but you might be able to start to accumulate some of them in this as well, and that could be helpful too. Yeah, they're hoping to get 10 different designs. They want at least four of those to be... Uh, for secondary suites, um, accessory dwelling units, laneway homes, as well as at least six for 
uh, multi-unit homes. And they have pictures in their well, diagrams, press release of, yeah, diagrams of what these would look like, whether they're like stacked on top of each other or kind of like townhomes that are perpendicular to the street. They like kind of go down into the lot, different approaches, maybe two separate buildings with two-story units, lots of different ideas here. Uh, it'll be really exciting, I think, for nerds like us to watch how these come out. So they're doing an RFP right now to hopefully get some designers to come forward with a bid on how much it'll cost to draw these up. And they're hoping to launch these by summer of next year, which is conveniently when all of the zoning starts rolling out. And so it can start moving really fast with these new specials. But not everyone is excited about these multiplexes, Scott. Let's talk about the legislature debates, uh, second reading specifically on Bill 44. I'll talk about the other bills as well, a couple of them. I'm just going to throw to guess here that uh, there is not going to be unanimous agreement on the biggest piece of legislation that uh, is or biggest three piece of legislation coming down this fall. So let me quote from Karen Kirkpatrick of BC United. I'll mostly be quoting her mostly because she's the critic for housing as well as the first one to speak. And I didn't feel like reading all of the speeches. There were a lot, especially on Bill 44. There were fewer on the later bills. Yeah, we don't quite have all the uh, the resources to go through every uh, word in Hansard, uh, but patreon.com slash pledgehost, and uh, maybe that'll change. So Kirkpatrick begins by highlighting that, you know, we need to address our housing supply, we need to encourage a variety of housing types, and we need to work make sure the work we're doing is really focused around transit-oriented communities. And she says, with upzoning, if it's done in the proper places, in the proper way, it also helps protect parks and green spaces. And right off the top there, you can start to see some of the hints that they are zeroing in on a criticism that I found through kind of all of their uh, responses to all of the bills is that they don't like the one size fits all as they uh, describe it, one size fits all approach that the government has taken with these bills. I mean, if the government had gone for a full one size fits all, they wouldn't have left it up to the municipalities to update their OCPs uh, within the guidelines at all, they would have just come in and overwritten them right away. So I'm not sure that's entirely fair on that, or yeah. at least not uh, matsonly truthful when it comes to this. But nevertheless, it is also good to have like kind of the agreement and principle of the broad direction on this. At least we're not arguing over that. Yeah, all of the parties support greater supply. Uh, and we can get into the Greens in a bit. They didn't say as much, but they did speak to this bill. That's not um, always been the case. That's true. Um, but they all talk about different things. Uh, BC United, you know, they talk about density and supporting density. They say, you know, Bill 44 seeks to increase density, which in theory we support. But again, devil is in the details. There's an outer lack of details in this legislation. Uh, and they kind of go from there. So, Kirkpatrick speaks to some of the challenges around uh, the concerns we've heard, the infrastructure capacity of especially deep suburban neighborhoods that might be at the end of the plumbing lines for the city. Um, they speak to potential displacement of existing residents. Uh, Kirkpatrick brings up, brings up the example of uh, demo evictions on the Broadway corridor from low-rise affordable rental units. Uh, and she brings up gentrification, gentrification being the concern the BC United bring up. 
I mean, they, they would hardly be the first party that isn't left wing to bring that up when uh, talking around housing issues. Or just look at Team in the last uh, election in uh, Vancouver. It it happens. The displacement one I found a little bit rich because the policy we're talking about here applies to what are single family houses right now. And it's very much true that there are some people renting those. There are people in my neighborhood who rent houses that could be uh, redeveloped into multiplexes because of this, and that would displace them. But when we're talking about where the like massive displacements are happening in the city of Vancouver and in these cities, they're in low rise apartments right now that are being upzoned and upbuilt because people can't build on, they can't densify these neighborhoods. Yeah, as a proportion of residents, the single family zone areas have the lowest percentage of renters. Um, so, yeah, it does not make sense to try and avoid changing them uh, in order to deal with the, uh, or in order to try and avoid that because anywhere else is just going to be worse. And the fact is, any housing change or even no change at all is going to have second or third order effects, some of which will impact renters. That's just unavoidable. So you just got to go ahead and this is as good a way as any. On the gentrification part, Kirkpatrick talks about uh, the absence of proper policies around that can really drive up property values, which can push out longstanding lower income residents as a concern. And that's something that'll come back to with Adam Olson's comments. Um, you know, they, they have to fill the time to oppose for the sake of opposing. So there's lots of stories mixed in here. And, I, you know, I will cut these quite short. Um, both her and Renee Merrifield bring up birth rates in their speeches about this bill, which I found interesting. I mean, it's a reasonable concern. Like the the birth rate in BC has been dropping. It's like well below replacement. And that is not good at all. And... To a certain extent, uh, housing costs are a contributing factor to it as uh, people wait longer to start families and that uh, has a uh, effect of decreasing the birth rate. So like, there's like a clear logical connection between housing and a declining birth rate, which is bad. Uh, it's so bad that Renee Merrifield calls it the most harrowing statistic of all. <laughs> Uh, like, Mer- I, Merrifield I has are... the stronger language than anyone in the legislature yeah, these days. She's can sometimes get a little ahead of herself when it comes to uh, the rhetorical choices uh, she goes with. But like as a whole, I think Canada is significantly underweighting the uh, potential costs of uh, declining population and aging population and. It's good at least somebody's talking about it because it is something we need to be thinking about a lot more and doing more to correct because, you know, I don't know about you, but at some point I would like to retire and uh, there needs to be enough workers in the economy at that point that uh, our pensions are actually working and can uh, pay for themselves and whatnot and uh the whole economy doesn't grind or halt as uh, the working population shrinks. Well, that's why Merrifield ties it to our immigration policies. But on uh, families, Merrifield 
highlights that I can also tell you there's a premium on places with yards. It doesn't have to be big, just big enough for them to let their dog out in the morning without having to get dressed. Uh, just enough for a little playground, a playset for the kids, maybe a teeter-totter for the toddler and so forth. She basically, she doesn't quite get into it there, but it's this idea, and I've seen it in some other comments that, you know, if we can't have single family homes, you won't have yards for everyone and everyone needs a yard, Scott. Uh, I mean, yards are nice. I grew up in a pretty big yard. Uh, the thing is, it is not like the be-all and end-all of uh, of housing. And, you know, I would also like to have a Ferrari and a private jet. But, like, I live in a world with trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs that happens to be is that if you want to live in a big city, you have to uh, deal with city size housing. And that means you're probably not going to have, you know, a third third of an acre lot with a big yard in it and that's just life and many of these multiplex designs still have yards just like townhomes still have yards they're not big enough i guess you can't go outside naked like she's talking about or in your pajamas with your dog uh but you can still have your little patch of grass or your patio furniture and get some fresh air that's your little sanctuary so it's disingenuous there at least but it does tie into this you know obsession with the single family home i mean merrifield goes on in this vein and says i'm actually i'm not that much of an advocate for single family housing but let me tell you why single family housing exists it's one of the most flexible zonings it is the fastest to build and it is the least cost per square foot to build i mean I- it's not the most flat like by definition it is the most restrictive of all the zoning types you can build less there than you can anywhere else you're limited to one unit there unlike pretty much any other type of zoning like the the only way it is more flexible is that uh, a lot of municipalities don't take quite as close a look at uh, that stuff and put it through quite as many ringers at the permitting stage when stuff goes through on it but like that's a policy choice of municipalities on how they do their permitting that's not inherent to uh single family zoning it's like that's just a load of bs and also and i've been loose with my language in the past in some of the discussion i've done about this but this doesn't eliminate single family homes this eliminates single family zoning and lets you build more than that you could still just build a single family home in (laughs) yeah you just have to uh deal with the opportunity cost of not building uh multiple units that you could either sell or rent out but there's nothing uh stopping you from doing that and nor should there be on the other side of the ledger i want to be fair i think there are some like useful critiques in what bcu had to say at least about this bill and kind of in the others and one of them is they point back to some of the other challenges that are impeding uh development uh they merrifield and uh, Kirkpatrick, at least, both pointed to the Metro Vancouver fees that we talked about that uh, stopped the federal housing minister from handing out checks in Burnaby and Surrey, um, and those kind of costs that are getting passed along that, you know, do make it more difficult to make affordable housing. But like, overall, in their comments, there's like an effort to you know, double down repeatedly. We are here for density. We love density, says Maryfield. BC United thinks density is great. As long as it's smart density, density in the right areas, plan density, density where it belongs. Uh, Those are all the uh, 
bits of language that have been uh, used to say no to various proposals in the past. I mean, my read on this isn't that they're like inherently opposed to it. It's more that they are trying to uh, not give the NDP a win on this one, on something that they are inclined to support in the broad strokes on it. So they're like looking for things to pick on and criticize and whatnot. But if this had been a bill that one of their members had put forward, they would probably not be voicing these concerns would be my guess. So what are they going to do? Uh, Kirkpatrick actually asked that as a rhetorical question. She says they are going to add supply. We're going to do that through working with municipalities and through reducing red tape and through reducing the cost to actually create housing. They want people to afford homes that are close to transit. So a focus on transit-oriented communities. We'll come back to that because they have a bill about that that they hadn't gotten to talk about. Uh, She mentioned smart density and the different infrastructure needs of different communities. Renee Merrifield, our blueprint is coming and it's going to be way better. It's actually going to fix housing. I'm excited about it. I can hardly speak. (laughs) I mean, that last part certainly seems true because there was not a lot of specifics in that. Uh, On missing specifics, uh, Adam Olson spoke first for the Greens with a quite lengthy speech. Um, It's interesting in many ways. I think this was on November 8th. So if you're interested in like where the BC Greens are at just on housing broadly, it's an interesting speech to read from that. It was not an interesting speech to read to see how they care about Bill 44 because he didn't get to it until his last like couple minutes. Um, It was a long discussion about like decommodifying the housing market and talking about uh, kind of how the system we have has set up to create, quote, undesirable wealth. It fuels decisions made in the real estate market. Um, kind of just like broadly speaking about housing as income property and how that's made it so unaffordable for so many people. And like, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for many of the length stuff he was talking about in there, but it just kind of like lacked specificity of like, okay, well, what are you going to do? Uh, he does. I mean, at this point, when I hear you to modify housing, I basically immediately write off whatever gets said around that because it almost always is some like vague buzzwordy thing that has no real actual uh, plan that can be implemented. Do I think? I forget the exact number. It's like around 95% of households currently uh, get their housing on the market. It would be a ma- absolutely massive undertaking to meaningfully change that to be you know more than half. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars to trillions of dollars worth of resources would have to be dedicated to it. Or, you know, a complete upending of the entire legal system around housing, property, and a whole bunch of things. Like, if you're not sketching out a detailed plan on how to do that, maybe just leave the vague buzzwordy stuff aside. Because it's it's a sign you're not a serious thinker on it. It's a sign you're resorting to uh cliches when talking about it on bill 44 uh olson says it perpetuates the zoning and land use system that dispossessed indigenous peoples from their lands illegally subdividing and zoning the lands are and distributing them to settlers who were previously starved and violently displaced from their own homelands you can imagine that there's a sour taste that that gives you a flavor of the language 
he's into. It's quite the rhetorical yeah, I, speech. I don't entirely buy that uh, description, though. Uh, zoning came to Canada in 1920s-ish. That was about the time Vancouver's first plan was coming in. Uh, there were some like land use regulations that had like popped up mostly around use and stuff a little earlier than that. But eh, by and large, it was like second and third decade of the uh, 20th century is when this stuff came in. Uh, that was quite a ways after uh, the events he was describing there. I think the Indian Act predates the first zoning code in Canada by something like 50 years or more. So it's... It's a stretch on that one. If I'm being charitable, he's blending two approaches to land that were both racist in their own ways. The first being just declaring Canada terra nullis that no one lived here and therefore they could just grant title to any piece to uh, European settlers, uh, not under zoning, but just like, this is your land now, Scott, you gave us a buck 50 for it or whatever. And then the later subdividing and zoning through city plans that uh, in Canada and the US were quite often explicitly racist in trying to uh, keep out undesirable populations from upper class neighborhoods through covenants that race literally like included those, you know, racial categories on them and still do to this day in many places, but they're unenforceable. Uh, Olson also kind of critiques Bill 44 for the potential of multiplying the wealth of those fortunate enough to own those little pieces of land by allowing three or four, six times the density. The idea being, you know, upzoning can increase land value. And that is true in the small amount. But one of the things that's interesting about how this will play out is when you do it to everyone, the like scarcity goes away somewhat, right? We've we have an artificial scarcity on density and we're reducing that evenly across the city. And not just that, like the corollary of the fact that uh, we have that artificial cap that is, you know, the government coming in and mucking around with things is that arguably this is a case that like the government has been improperly depriving people of the value of their land. And it is not so much a, sudden you know surge of wealth it's a case of you know we're no longer artificially taking suppressing your wealth on this one and you know in that respect it, it's kind of hard to see what's wrong with changing the land used to be more flexible let people uh have more value from their land by being able to do more valuable things with it olson does kind of pose a number of rhetorical questions about how the Greens would think about this differently and approach it on the supply. He asks about underutilization of existing housing stocks. So he says, anecdotally, there are many single family homes in my community with one or two people living in uh, those houses with many more bathrooms and baths than they need. He says, quote, why hasn't the government created a program to incentivize single people and couples who are oversized to downsize to free up bedrooms so it's not even empty homes but it's empty bedrooms not a tax but you know here's here's a hundred bucks go find somewhere smaller or something maybe something a little more effective than that well it's not like there isn't already an incentive though if you own you know a 
four bedroom single family home that you're not using most of it on, you could sell that, move into a condo, and pocket a hefty hunch of change. Like it's not clear where the market failure is on that that would require incentives and government correction. Uh, he's suggesting a grant. And this is a direct quote, a grant to cover the moving and storage of excess possessions, uh, a substantial tax incentive for those who entered the program to right size their housing in an effort to free up some of those empty bedrooms, either for someone to rent or for families who need space to growing children. Um, he says, another idea I proposed to the minister, if that one is venturing into too much discomfort, is to abandon the notion BC housing needs to only build uh, or purpose build the solutions. Why not have a program that purchases larger homes, larger buildings on the market, and transform them into multi home buildings, rentals managed by nonprofit housing or co op? The idea being take, I guess, you know, we see this in Calgary right now, they're taking some of the larger office buildings that are vacant and saying, we're going to turn these into housing. Um, it's not a terrible idea. I actually like it as an approach. It It's going to be limited in its capacity just by yeah and if you out there if it's the case where you can do that under the current zoning which in probably a large part of the province right now you can't at least until these bills come through you know once that changes it's once again not clear why you would need the government to do that because you would then have the ability for just anyone to buy it and subdivide it and uh, renovate it to have multiple units in it as a conversion. And I don't know, like they, they need to reflexively grab at a government solution when you know the private sector is probably entirely willing to do it were it not for the existing barriers the government is doing. Uh, strikes me as a little incoherent and nonsensical as an idea. I think there's a value in the idea of, and the government is already looking at this, having more affordable housing built by the government. You know, We see this in the hints that they are going to combine the tools they're putting together. The bill they put forward earlier this year allowed TransLink to start buying up and developing housing properties within... Uh, reasonable distances of transit stations. And now they've just upzoned all of those and they let it leak in a uh, interview that there's a $400 million fund that TransLink has access to to buy property. So there's a big chance that TransLink is already starting to build this kind of nonprofit rental housing that could make a big difference at the lower end of the market. Yeah, although- too. At the, the like the lower end of the market is actually a case of market failure where it made sense to do it. It's just the we're going to buy up some existing housing stock and subdivide it. That's yeah, not clear. There's market failure that needs to be addressed there. Another suggestion he comes across is investing in modular building systems. So he go he expands on this a little bit, but the idea of manufactured homes, but trying to reduce the stigma on them and doing them at its scale so that it can be. Uh, faster and reduce the costs of construction that we see for many units that go up in the province, which, you know, feels like one of those, it's not a bad idea, but I don't know. And it's a positive one, but how scalable is it and how like, well, that's one area where the market generally hasn't been all that effective. And that's because uh, attempts at doing mass produced factory housing generally runs into the problem where you have a quite a cyclical 
market where, you know, in downturns, basically home building dries up. Uh, but there's a lot of very expensive capital cost that goes into setting up the facility uh, that you can't just avoid during market downturns. So in theory, if the government was to basically be the buyer of last resort uh, during those periods, that might actually be the thing that could make that more feasible. Yeah. So beyond Olson's speech, uh, First and Now spoke to some of the same things on their website. I actually noticed on Facebook today, I got an ad from the BC Greens talking about uh, supporting housing, and they have a little petition on their website about it and a little bit of their platform that talks about building enough housing, making housing affordable, uh, reducing wealth inequality, creating affordable rental housing, uh, and so forth. It was all very... I looked through it. It was all very vague. Yeah. I I was hoping to see more. Yeah. It's almost a little bit like I was talking about with the uh, decommodify housing. I don't recall if that specific phrase came in there. A lot of like, yeah, we need to have uh, more affordable housing, which is okay, great, but if you don't actually know how to get from here to there in that plan, that's that's a vague statement of principles. That's not an actual plan on there, and that's kind of the problem with a lot of what I read on it, is it was at best a direction they were pointing at rather than an actual plan. And I'll cut them a little bit of slack because as a caucus of two, they don't have access to the resources that larger caucuses have or even like the tools of government to develop. But like they have talked more about housing in the past. Yeah. If they had just like dusted off their 2017 platform and like punched up a few of the sections on it, it would have been better than what they have on there now. In the end, uh, the BC NDP MLAs were the only one to vote in favor of the multiplex uh, development bill on second reading. The BC Conservatives didn't have anything to say about it, uh, but they voted against it, both of them. Uh, on Bill 46, the uh, development fees won. Uh, I think Karen Kirkpatrick's best comments were right off the top. Like, I don't understand why we've had three bills addressing amendments to the same statute in the last few days. Why didn't this all form one act, which was much larger amendment? Uh, she complained about a lack of consultation, a lack of details in the bill. Uh, she made the good point, you know, why are we doing this now and not a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? I could- <laughs> yeah, fair on that one. I mean, we'd be basically saying that for the past year. Um, and arguably longer. Uh, I do kind of get the feeling, though, if this had all been one build, the opposition would be complaining about how this was an omnibus build. They weren't able to take the time and look into like each section enough on, on itself. And like, why should, why couldn't have this been three pieces of legislation <sighs> really feels like one of these damned, if you do damned, if you don't sorts of things from the government where you will just never have the opposition happy with your procedural choices. Oh, yeah. yeah. And some of that is uh, performative because you have to say something to be the opposition. It's the nature of the system. Uh, on that, you know, she does praise them for coming up with consistency, transparency, some certainty. So projects are a little bit more um, able to move forward. But she says, uh, quote, it has also taken away some of the tools that some communities use through CACs, for example, where some communities actually put some of those funds directly into an affordable housing fund that developers can draw on. So a little bit of critique there. Um, I know Burnaby has big affordable housing fund partially funded through the massive amount of CACs they collected under 
Derek Corrigan, uh, and they are actually putting that to use now, part of why Derek Corrigan is no longer in office. Um, so, you know, maybe there's a valid critique around what restrictions there are around the ACC funds as opposed to the previous ones. But uh, she also suggests, you know, there's real concerns looking at what we've got before us today that we are going to contribute to escalating costs and are not going in the right directions. And I, I don't know how they are suggesting something different unless they are eliminate, would eliminate the ability for municipalities to charge fees to developments, which would be a proposal. It could, you, you, you know, pass it all on to property taxes payers, but. Yeah. I, I mean, I did see some suggestion from uh, some people in the know that this when applied to communities that aren't like Vancouver, where you have a massive delta between your uh, construction costs and where the market, I mean, not massive, but we're, you know, we're, cause there's a lot of soft costs and whatnot that on there, but um, like where you don't have a significant difference on there um, that like some of these may push projects to not pencil if applied to communities where there isn't a huge amount of uh, scarcity in the, their housing system. So, you know, that maybe there's a little bit to that in terms of the finer points on how it's structured. I, I don't know enough of the details to say, but like I've I've seen people who I trust on this stuff at least voice that concern. Ultimately, the Greens actually did support this bill. I think they may have spoken to it, but I didn't find, you know, I was trying to skim through real quick this afternoon, uh, uh, substantive critiques in the Greens uh, approach on this. So NDP and Green supported Bill 46 with the Conservatives and United against it. On Bill 47, the transit-oriented development one, this is, remember, the BC United talked about the importance of transit-oriented development. And so uh, Karen Kirkpatrick, you know, praises that this is coming forward, although she's a bit frustrated about the lack of consultation in this. She points out that a m- number of mayors are like, where did this come from? Uh, she points out again that one size fits all, particularly when we're talking about high, high density, can't be applied the same to all communities. Uh, I'm a, I mean, it's not going to be applied the same to all communities because there's only, well, like five or six municipalities in the province that have a rapid transit system that go through that. Well, the bill does have increased density for, uh, there's different levels to it, remember, right? There is like not everywhere is getting 20 story towers that's just metro van right but there are like by definition means it's not one size fits all (laughs) fair uh kirkpatrick i'm a big proponent that we don't need to have a parking stall for every condominium i think people need to be able to we can start to reduce the cost of housing by not having that requirement but we need to have some parking uh, this is a line that the BC Conservatives picked up on Twitter, but they didn't actually. It ha- this bill hasn't finished debate in the House yet. Uh, I think they're returning to it after the like, weekend. Like you were saying, with the you know not banning single family home, this is kind of the same for parking. It's not banning building parking; it's just not making you build it. So the uh, the market can still sort that out, and developers can still put as much parking as they think is needed. BC Conservative leader John Rustad tweeted out in response to Ravi Colon pointing out the removing restrictive parking minimums. BC families need cars and parking to get to school and work and to get groceries for a family and get their kids to hockey practice. Conservatives are committed to fighting the BC NDP's anti-driving and anti-family agenda. Uh, and this picks up on language that they brought in around the zero emission vehicle bill that increased the targets for sales. 
Uh, they point. They argue that bill is anti-driving, anti-car because it tells you what kind of car you will have to drive, and EVs just aren't practical in BC. They've picked their lane. I'll, I'll, I'll say this about the BC Conservatives because I didn't find much on them on housing, and I think that is smart for them. They don't really have anything substantive to say, and where they are getting their traction is tripling down on culture war issues. Some of their recent posts were about being at a anti-health mandate rally and how they called for Bonnie Henry to be fired because uh, she still has a mandate for vaccines in place for healthcare workers. And BC is the only place in North America with that. And so we're basically a dictatorship. As also a take. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think you are right that they know what voter coalition they need to assemble in order to hit their targets for the next election, which basically is displace the... Uh, BC United in a bunch of the the rural seats and you know, take a big uh, bite out of them and eventually uh, and use that basically as momentum to displace them as the primary party on the right. And they're probably playing that fairly well for that goal. Now, six years from now, they may have a problem when they are the main opposition and need to figure out how to go from 20 seats to uh to be able to win and this rhetoric probably isn't going to help them there but in terms of uh how you get from here to uh pushing the bcu aside this this may work yeah and the core areas that they're focused on don't have the same level of housing crisis that metro van and the capital region have like housing is under affordable in most parts of the province but it is much more affordable in many places than it is where we are, or at least I am these days. Um, so it makes sense where they're planting their flag. But like what I wanted to get out of this segment was to just kind of see th- where everyone is at. And, you know, my initial impression of the bills was that they don't face serious opposition because they're doing something. And it's been so long since we've had anything happen that was substantial enough to possibly have an impact and it's hard to critique the government for doing that like i think they all pointed out in different ways that like this isn't going to meet the cmhc targets as we talked about but it's moving us true. the furthest there that we've seen anyone propose yet yeah it's not like the opposition has a plan to hit that uh was it 600 some odd thousand homes by 2030 which is a very heavy lift, so I'm not surprised they haven't been able to crack that one with their significantly smaller resources than the government has. I mean, there is an alternate reality where this is a BC Liberal government that is bringing in a fairly similar set of bills, and uh, the BC NDP in opposition is railing against it as, uh, you know, neoliberalism or gentrification uh on steroids or all of that stuff but none of the parties are really putting that forward and the greens are probably the ones that are most aligned with those sorts of talking points um but they're not taking that tat so yeah there isn't a huge amount of opposition and uh, like this these set of bills could very easily have been something that a center-right government have brought in. 
and in that respect, like it doesn't actually leave the uh, BC United with much more than uh, you know a few small things to pick at. But like the broader, hey, we're going to make it easy as a regulatory matter to uh, prove homes and get them built. It's not exactly a uh, a strategy that. BC United is uh, going to be instinctually opposed. Yeah, fundamentally, this is a neoliberal approach to tackling the housing market. And what I am interested to watch for is what comes next, because I suspect there's at least like we don't have BC built yet. And that's the thing that I think will really differentiate what the NDP wants to do versus what BC United, BC Conservatives especially would be putting forward and how much money and how you know, ambitious they are going to go for with that public sector construction angle. Um, but we won't know that until the spring. Yeah, we will have to see on that. And yeah, it's going to be curious to watch that because uh, when BC Builds is first floated, the interest rate environment was a lot different than it is now. And yeah, I think it still probably made sense to build housing that uh, current interest rates. But uh, for a lot of... Uh, stuff that's been talked about for several years and we may get to this when we talk about farm care a bit things that uh, make sense when you can uh, borrow at one uh, percent or less maybe don't make sense when your borrowing costs are uh, four or five times that I mean if it doesn't make at sense not to the same scale I mean if it doesn't make sense for the provincial government to borrow and build it's not going to make as much sense for the private sector to borrow and build someone's got to borrow and build though well I mean the if you're doing like a B, uh, one that's targeted at non-market housing, like it's a very different thing because you're specifically doing cases where you're not trying to structure it to uh, pay yourself back and charge rents accordingly. So like there, there's there's not an apples to oranges or apples to apples comparison on that one. Speaking of borrowing and building, the Prime Minister was in Metrovan this week to announce with Premier David Eby uh, a billion-dollar battery plant. Uh, we're getting ours after Ontario got theirs. Uh, Ontario is not uh, 13 times larger than us, so uh, I do notice not quite a one-for-one one on that. Because uh, the single plant there got, what, $13 billion, and there's another one that got... Uh, quite a bit more here and this between the feds and us comes out to a uh, little over a billion in this case this plant uh will c- include 80 million dollars from the bc government and 970 from a combination of private government e one moly who is the company developing this plant in maple ridge and private sources and the federal announcement was worth 204.5 million uh, this plant's been operating since 1990, and with its expansion, that will be complete by 2028. Uh, they will have 450 jobs to make uh, lithium-ion batteries, which are absolutely necessary. But man, these are expensive projects for, I guess, just yeah. The cost per job is <laughs> fairly high, but like in theory, this is not there to be a jobs program. That it's there to help the energy transition so if you're just looking at it on the raw uh dollar for jobs basis you're missing a bit nevertheless like that it is a fairly expensive undertaking and 
when you add up all the various battery plants, it's it's a lot of money going into this that maybe not like the best ROI. Yeah, it is positioning us as the, I don't know, battery capital of the world, maybe. And that's, I don't even know. <laughs> is it though? Like the US is throwing a lot of money at this too. And, uh, you know, do, do all of the, like, if you add all of these up, do they like even co- match one to like the Tesla data factory, just like what one factory in the US is output? Probably not. I, I Like I'm not well versed <laughs> enough in this. Yeah, I've not pulled up the statistics either, but like, I, I'm just skeptical that Canada is going to be the uh, battery capital of the world when you have the U.S. splashing around orders of magnitude more money as part of the the IRA for a whole bunch of stuff. Well, speaking of questionable investments on climate policy, uh, Ottawa's single-use plastic ban on drinking straws and other single-use plastics has been struck down by the federal court as unreasonable and unconstitutional. Uh, Specifically, they used a cabinet order that uh, these plastics should be listed on the list of toxic substances in Schedule 1. And the the court said, there's no proof that all these plastics are harmful. You can't just put them there and ban them. Which is reasonable. I mean, also, like, it is uh, just the case that uh, those substitute paper straws are just the worst that like significantly decrease the quality of uh straw so i'm not sad to see this uh go at all but yeah it's the case that turns out uh, as a government you can't just say yeah you know what let's just uh try and squeeze this in here via regulation just just because we feel like it even if the uh enabling legislation isn't exactly uh supportive of that and you can't just take an entire category and declare them toxic without actually proving that uh when you make the regulations i haven't read the full decision and this is outside my legal expertise so the federal government has said they are considering an appeal and like they might win an appeal right i don't know this well enough but um I think it is a notable decision, yeah, I mean, I, or at least an interesting bit of news. Yeah, I mean, with the Supreme Court, you, you never know on that, on how those are going to uh, go. I mean, so Stephen Gabot, the environment minister, uh, said Canadians have been loud and clear that they want action to keep plastic out of the environment. And we'll, we'll have more to say on this step soon when he was uh, saying that they were going to consider appeal but like you don't just get to do whatever you want as a government because your voters really really want you to if it's uh not the case that the uh the actual legal framework is there to support that so yeah maybe they'll come back with some legislation on this they're apparently and we've not had time to dig into the uh court case that only got decided today a few hours before recording um there may be some challenges with broader limits on federal power in terms of what they can scope within this as well. Uh, but that wasn't really decided in, in full on this. So that's us another potential area of limitation they may run up against. The other bit of news out of the federal government is the Heritage Ministry has issued its final directions to the CRTC on the Online Streaming Act, C11. Uh, this is the you know controversial 
bill that tries to bring the internet into our CanCon system in the most messy and un seemingly unnecessary way. Uh, this confirms what the government has said but refused to put in the law, which is that content creators will not be regulated by the CRTC. Uh, only those who do professional licensed commercial content uh, and... Well, not directly. They're still regulating YouTube under this one and how those regulations get structured, you know, may end up doing regulation by proxy rather than regulation directly. And some level that's not a huge reassurance if you're a YouTube creator. Yeah. Uh, this sets up basically the structure that the CRTC now can start consulting on and developing their own regulations around to implement the bill and sometime in a few years, it will be in place. Yeah, I mean, there's still a fundamental problem that Canton may have made sense in an era where the distribution channels were inherently limited. You had, you know, a few TV stations, few radio, and like, there was a reason with that uh, structure some stuff around Canadian content and whatnot. But these days where the distribution channels are essentially unlimited and there is ease at pumping out plentiful Canadian content that uh, can be consumed not just in Canada, but exported around the world, it's really seems to be a case of taking a the internet and trying to squeeze it into a pre-internet framework that is just fundamentally not the right approach to this. And we'll see what the CRTC comes up with, but I am not optimistic that it is going to be anything but a case of uh, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Finally, the NDP have announced that the first draft of the Liberals' Pharmacare legislation has not met the red lines that they are drawing under their confidence and supply agreement. As part of that agreement, the Liberals pledged to bring forward a bill enshrining Pharmacare and setting a path forward for it to become part of our healthcare system by the end of this year. There are now four sitting weeks left in the leg in the House of Commons calendar to bring this bill forward for first reading, which I think is sufficient for the bill, uh, with which I think is sufficient for the agreement to uphold. Um, it seems like there's a the you know no one except you know the core of the NDP have seen the draft and the government, um, but the lines seem to be whether it is a full universal publicly funded system that the NDP wants, or whether it's a bit more vague and flexible, and maybe there's room for, you know, carving out some people or involving more private delivery, as the liberals might be proposing. And how tough the NDP fights here might just determine whether we get full pharmacare or go to an election, or they cave in the next four weeks. I mean, we're not getting leching out of this. The uh, the NDP have just as much to lose as the Liberals if they go to an election. Like it's 
they can try and play hardball and on this, but uh, ultimately they're in no shape to contest an election, and they can read the polls just as well as anyone else and see that uh, if they do defeat the government over this, it's just going to mean a uh, two hundred seat pair probably have majority. So they have really no actual cards to play on this one beyond you know trying to talk to a good game, but they they really can't actually push it that far without hurting themselves just as much they they do need so, to take a stand like somewhere can, though right if they don't yeah but like what the fuck's the point weak, like, we're, yeah but like because of how they've positioned themselves up till now like if you read the uh article on there it they talked about oh how the liberals are just in the pocket of big pharma and we're not and whatnot, but like that all rings hollow when you're part of a supplying confidence agreement and you're, you know, you, the two of you are sitting down and hammering out exactly what kind of farmer care deal works between you two. Like it just, it's a lot of complaining and, you know, political grandstanding, but it just doesn't really feel backed up by anything significant. And as a result, yeah. It all feels kind of hollow. Yeah, they can talk a good game, and I'm sure their supporters will be happy about it. But they don't have all that much political leverage on this one. And ultimately, they're probably going to end up closer to where the liberals want to be than not. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Like The liberals are probably going to come back with a few tweets and... Uh, the NDP will likely grudgingly accept that while claiming it was some big victory and we'll carry on from there. And I don't know, maybe there'll be something rolled out in actuality in a few years if it, uh, they somehow manage to uh, survive the next election. I mean, the fun thing for the Liberals is they can survive votes without the NDP if they get the block on board. And they can coast for a little bit right they like the ndp can't by themselves or even just the ndp and conservatives bring down the government they need the bloc to also be willing to go to the polls and i don't know what they want to do (laughs) no one does they seem random (laughs) maybe it's just because i'm in english canada we'll have to see like i mean the uh conservatives for years were masters of basically playing off one opposition party or another, it depending on whoever least won the election and squeezing out some support or ne- enough abstentions to uh, get their legislation passed. And I mean, it worked for them. I am just not sure the liberals are able to course correct at this point on, well, anything, and particularly stuff as. Uh, <sighs> specific as having to deal with uh, the finer points of uh, legislation management and whatnot, which has never been their strong suit. Even when they were a majority government, they they struggled to get stuff through the House on timely matters. And I just... Listen, all the block needs to see from a pharmacare bill is that Quebec is carved out and gets a giant bag of money because <laughs> they already have pharmacare and they're Quebec. And so that's what they always want. And then they can get those votes. 
Mm-hmm. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.